I'm super excited to have Jan here. I think that most people here probably know a little bit of him or about him, or in fact, as we already discovered, have even met him. But I think you're interesting as an interview in our fellow section and in our fellow program for two specific reasons. Once, because you're an incredible agent in the world. You have really like done anything from a really wonderful physics degree to really like founding much of the or developing much of the funding technology in Skype and to developing a lots of other interesting games and technological companies. Um, and then also really kickstarting a lot of the existential risk companies and communities that we really rely on right now to like keeping existential risk at bay. And so you've done a ton of different interesting things, including investing, founding, funding, uh, philanthropic engagement, researching, and so forth. And so I think it's uh, really interesting just make for different people that are all at different stages in their career to discuss. And then the second thing why I think that you're really wonderful guests is really because of your deep interest in the long-term future. So I hope we dig into both of them at their own pace. Um, and yeah, maybe I'll start with a few questions. And if anyone from our audience wants to chime in at any time, feel free to either collect the questions in the chat or just raise your hand and then we'll loop you in. And so really just take my questions as like first warm uppers uh, and then you can, and then you can go. But maybe Jan, in your own words, could you describe perhaps like your life story in the soul? What are you working on? How did you get to where you are? Like what were the different threats that kind of pulled you from one individual kind of stopping your career to the other? Yeah. Um, hmm. I don't know how to compress everything. I mean, was born in occupied Estonia and found that computers are interesting. Lucky to work on some kind of main Soviet style mainframes before the occupation ended. Then occupation ended. Entrepreneurship became legal. Started my company. Worked 10 years on, on producing computer games until graphics cards destroyed our business because we were mostly about programming and less about kind of story and art. And then. <coughs> But then it was 99, 1999, like 1999, which meant that it was a dot-com boom. And we got grouped into web development. We had to kind of reorient. And, and that's basically moment where I stopped having like an Excel sheet with runway because that was like highly profitable. And after that, ended up, yeah, doing Kazaa with, with people I met at this web development gig. Then a bunch of other projects that didn't go anywhere. Then Skype. And once I was started to transition out from Skype, I stumbled upon Eliezer Yuskowski's writing and they struck me as something that seemed to be like the most important thing that the humanity is not paying attention to. So I had a long meeting with him in March, 2009, uh, where we discussed these things and came, I came out of it is that, okay, yep, that's my life mission now. And basically I positioned myself as someone who A, can take those arguments that very few people are paying attention to, but can think of use my brand and street credibility to kind of sell it to people who kind of need some nights from, from not just the arguments, but from who is saying those. And as a side effect, create a Cambridge Center for Study Cambridge Center for the Study of Extension Risk, as well as Future of Life Institute. And uh, yeah, then got into crypto along the way, bought my first Bitcoin for a dollar and then diversified into other, other Currencies like Ethereum. Yeah, I've been following crypto pretty closely. Now, currently trying to really think about what can we do to slow down the large language models, because we are currently reading alien minds in a way that is visible from space. Like the GPT-5 reading is taking, I think the calculation was something like seven megawatts, if I remember correctly. That should be 
visible and important that they are, they're not controllable minds. Microsoft did not have like meetings about how can we make this agent more sassy and more threatening to our users. And it was just, they don't control it. So I'm very worried about what's going to happen with things like GPT-5 that's all now being trained and, and beyond. Yeah, I hope that we get into all of that a little later too. I know that you've given like some really, I think, good and also mainstream accessible talks also on AI and its long-term potential and risk. And I know that that is your main focus area, even like within existential risk. So I'm really dying to, to get into it. Perhaps a few words about like how you got to where you were. You first really were a theoretical physicist, right? And I think you're... Yeah, I wanted to actually say that. I, I, I was kind of into computers. I was already sort of running a computer games business when I thought that I need to, basically <laughs> I graduated high school and then thought I need to study something and thought that well computer science I know everything already so it's like why not like take something broader and so I went that's why I went to into into just just, just to study physics and I graduated as a physicist which I think it has been like was a great decision but I never kind of worked as a physicist so it was like a sidekick sort of Okay, so there was never actually like an intention of yours to perhaps stay in academia or work as a physicist. Got it. It's actually interesting. Like many of my physicist friends have eventually moved into AI, and so that that there there is a very big pipeline, I think, of folks. Yeah, I, I saw I saw but, this. There was like a draft by some famous physicist entrepreneur, who uh, of of an article where he kind of claimed this that, that if you look at those who are who are not worried about AI, they tend to be computer scientists. And who are worried about AI they tend to be physicists, or at least like physics background. And then the bottom line was that perhaps it's time for computer scientists to have their own Man Manhattan Project movement, where physicists, according to that article, are going to start really worrying about potential damage to the world that they might be doing. Okay, interesting. Well, and so in principle, I mean, like the fact that you relatively quickly moved into the computer science kind of like industry, would you say that that is something specific to computer science? Or would you say in general, like you'd recommend folks to even like when they're in chemistry or something, perhaps consider like spinning out a project into into the real world? Or would you say that it's, it's really relatively field dependent? And for you, it was, it happened to be that in your computer science interest, that is just a better impact that you can be having. Trying to compile. I'm not sure I understood the question. <laughs> so, Same, because we have, we have many folks here on the call who are in academia and then a few of, of them are working on the independent research projects and a few of them are working like actually at companies or founding companies and so forth. And would you say that in general, you'd recommend one path or the other academia versus like the private sector? Or would you say it's really just incredibly dependent on which area you're in and there's not really like a kind of like a reason to, to be more operating in the private sector? I know that, for example, yes. many folks in academia are thinking of spinning out potentially eventually, but they're not mm -hmm. quite sure whether they want to stay in academia. I think I both are like really stressful careers, but stressful in like very different ways. So yeah, entrepreneurship, like one of my portfolio companies, company CEOs describe it really funny. They said that like, Building a startup is like trying to push, I don't know, what is that, like a square rock up a hill and with each movement it gets bigger. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of like, kind of be like super stressful. In academia here, I, I've never been going to spend, I've never spent career days in academia, but I just hear a lot of people seem to be like just super unhappy because, because of the stress and low pay, especially if you are not uh, sort of like established or if you're young, younger, but I don't actually have a good, a good, good model about like how how universal this kind of like stressful and stressful and, and occasion, like usually meaningless race, race in academia. So it's possible that there are kind of corners of, of bliss, of bliss there too. 
Well, I can't believe that that portfolio company compared startup to like a myth of Sisyphus. Yeah, but with a square, a square we're rock. Falling down the hill on top. Peter, you have a question. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear from you, Jan, how you are dealing with information overload. I feel like the last couple of months, I'm I'm spending most of my OODA loop in the Orient, observe Orient phase, maybe partially decide, but then some new new information comes out and I restart. Yeah, I mean, I have some routines <clears throat> that I have, like some I mean, websites. I mean, I've been every day like checking the news on Russian invasion of Ukraine because it's like literally close close to home and like less wrong. And then I have a bot that scrapes hacker news and filters out stuff that I could be potentially find interesting. I do find that uh, it is... A problem I should edit and linearize my information consumption more, but this is like investment thing. Like I, I it has like an investment overhead. I would need to like actually get some code written that would line some of that streamline and filter. So I don't think I'm like super great in having like exemplary information management. But I think that that I think it's like a general advice, like have policies. <laughs> So it's like have policies and routines. So I would say my information consumption is like just having like a, like a, some set of routines and, and trying not to kind of like just binge on stuff that is just designed to be addictive or something. I don't know if these days I spend my, usually my days on with non-linear library, like the podcast in and it's terrifying after a while because they, the output is so good because most of yeah, the yeah, I, yeah, uh, uh, yeah I, that's a good, good point. Like I, I do have sort of like one of the policies I have is that like when I do exercise uh, or walk, uh, then I listen to either books or or, or podcasts and have like a queue of, of those. Awesome. Thank you. I'll just start with a few more questions about, I guess, like different decisions in your career path. And if anyone wants to ask any questions, please, please feel, just feel free to jump right in. I would love to see, I think the kind of like founding of the Center for the Study of Existential Risk and for Future of Life, like that takes so much coordination. Like it takes the coordination of like other co-founders. It takes the coordination of the financial resources to make it happen. And also some kind of like shared vision and so forth. So I'm really curious, like how did you kind of decide that you want to be involved really in these organizations and in their, in their inception? And then how did you, what was the kind of like a coordination loop required to get everyone on the same page and get this, get these two very different organizations going? Well, it was, it was kind of, Rather typical sort of startup founding story, sort of like you basically needed like one person who is like the sort of the lead initiator. In Cambridge, it was Hugh Price who had just transitioned from Australia to UK, and basically was looking for some entrepreneurial project in addition to just being like a philosophy professor or starting as a philosophy professor. And then like, yeah, I met him at the conference and convinced him that like existential risks are important, and he he basically. It was sort of his, his project, both kind of putting the founding team together, that is like himself, myself, and Lord Martin Rees, finding funding for it. It, it, was, it took like actually one and a half or two years to, to get it like fully funded. Like our, our initial application that he was like optimistic actually didn't go through. So it, he had to go back to doing the fundraising again. And in FLI, it was Max, Max Tegmark. He, he had just finished like his Mathematical Universe book. And said that instead of filling, like, he had cleared, to write a book, he had cleared 
his calendar from all sorts of crap. And he said that he, he was unwilling to put the crap back in. So I thought that he better put something more meaningful. And that's, that's basically how FLI started. He recruited other four owners. And, and I, my, my own approach has been sort of, I kind of like, I have this, I call it like civilization resource model, game of civilization. You have three or four kinds of resources that can map to resources that I can think of. So gold maps to finances, yeah, to money. Then uh, production maps to attention. There's a bit of, you know, need to squint a little. Then culture maps to the brand. And so turns left is sort of like obvious, <laughs> obvious resource. And so when I got, when I like propose us to be involved in, in various things, I kind of see like, what is the, what are my, in this like four, four dimensions of so four kinds of resources. Does that project shift those resources around in a way that make addresses my resource bottlenecks? Or is it like cheap enough to spend some of your resources to kind of get? Yeah, I guess you can always, always look at this as like a resource, resource trading. So like in FLI and Caesar, the main resource that I did contribute was my brand versus I didn't like I did they put in some finances to both as well, but like not I'm not the majority funder of either. I love it. This finalization model for making business there. Are there any other principles? For example, what does do does this model also map to, for example, let's say your other philanthropic funding decisions or even like your investment decisions or are you using different models there from other games? <laughs> no, it, it does. So it's I mean obviously like investments it's a simpler thing you're trading. Well, actually, no. In, in, yeah, investment, it is, it is also like the one thing that I think is super useful to know when it comes to investing is that like brand is the most important thing because like brand is more important than like ability to select. There is like one VC that kind of was bragging to me that they like look at like thousand opportunities and then pick one out of 1000. I said, well, I invest in every second. So it's, it's, it's like just a matter if, 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 if your brand basically, your, your brand basically manifests in, in, in the, in the pipeline quality. So I think that's, that's like being consciously cultivating. So for those of the folks on the call, perhaps that are like currently founding a new, yeah, a new venture or like a new project, would you say, apart from focus on the brand, are there any other bits where like in your previous investments or like portfolio companies, you've seen that that usually drives them to a, a better or worse? trajectory yeah so like some heuristics that i have when it comes to and i mostly i delegated away my like investment legwork i do make the final decisions but but most of the most of the kind of cycles are actually spent out of other people now i do think that it's important to have some kind of story that makes sense like i think that's like this failure mode where entrepreneurs build something with investors in mind as their customers which kind of I see where this is coming from, but it's like a version of good hearting. Like ideally you want to have, from my perspective, like you, you should have a story that, that makes sense that, and also has some important properties, like for example, enablers, like what, why this thing is possible now and wasn't like five years ago. And like sort of why you, what is the, what is the kind of advantage that you and your team has particularly over, over the competition? Do you have like some special experience that like is rare? And yeah, basically like why also sort of like story for like why, why this is all. And in particular myself, I am very interested in, in things that uh, you can't buy right now. So I'm less interested in, in kind of new startups that are making something cheaper, which kind of 
can be valuable, but it's it's like sort of I find it like less interesting than than like startups that are doing some developing something that is just you can't buy no matter what how many how much money you have right now. So yeah, things like that. There are more kind of criteria that I'm kind of forgetting right now, but these are some of the basic ones. Yeah, I saw, for example, that I researched Pactum, which is this kind of preferred B2B negotiation and like chatbot. Estonian startup, yep. Yeah, really cool. And I, I researched them because I thought something like this should exist, and then it did exist. And then I saw mm. the investor in them once I looked at their website. Are there any others that you're really excited about? Because one could argue that it's possibly good for AI alignment, because I guess like bots will be trained on preferred negotiations of humans. On the other hand, it could also, I guess, lead to some kind of exploitability there. But in just just in general, are there any other kind of investment opportunities that you were like particularly excited about? Maybe also having your long head on. I find myself find myself and slash my team kind of like drawn quite a bit to bio investments just because the neighbors are like all over the place right now. So yeah, we have this pretty significant bio. Yeah, when it comes to, I think it was mentioned by one of the fellows, like biosensing, sensing stuff and kind of novel, novel therapies and, and whatnot. Again, stuff that A, is now possible because of advances in AI, as well as mRNA, stuff like that. And are things that one can't just buy, even if we had like all the money in the world. So these are, these are like one, one big class. Okay, cool. Yeah. I, I also like have this, I mean, I have non-trivial amount of like AI investments. And this is like where the kind of the boundary between my philanthropy and my investing kind of starts to blur, but not to the degree, degree that I would actually like it to blur. But yeah, like many of my AI investments are basically done in order to, for me to kind of like have a ticket to the kitchen and, and preach about AI safety. Like the DeepMind one, I, I figure maybe one. Yeah, DeepMind was, was pretty much the first one in that class. Okay, cool. I like that. That you get to the kitchen. Are you using it a lot? So, so, so one, one important thing that I've been kind of saying to entrepreneurs that is one thing that people don't necessarily realize about VCs is that like VCs have bosses. They know always half of the job is investing, but the other half is raising money. And they like whenever they invest, they have to think about what, how does it look? How does that investment contribute to their ability to fundraise later from, from LPs? And I don't have that problem. So it's like, because I, I don't invest other people's money. So I can go to entrepreneurs and say that, look, if it turns out that we are potentially doing something dangerous, I'm totally happy to walk away from profits because it doesn't make sense for me to push for profits in order to then use my other hand to donate things. I, I'm happy to just walk away from profits and consider, consider it a donation. So and that's what I think I think the VCs cannot easily do. They, they still can, but like it's, it's like they have to go against their incentives. And have you used this and take it to the kitchen a lot to preach? Yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, I do think that DeepMind was the most notable example, but yeah, I mean, Anthropic is the most recent one, even though like they, they need much less preaching than, than DeepMind. Uh, I think DeepMind, I think still is. I was the last, it was December, last December. And it's a big place and the culture is not like homogeneous. So like it's, I still bumped into people who were just like, what do you mean? Yeah, it could be dangerous. So it's, yeah. Wow. Even after Demo's big piece? Yeah. Interesting. So, so it's, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, like a thousand plus people company. So in some ways they are kind of reflection. They're closer to a sort of general scientist population than Anthropic is, which is much more compact and culturally unified. Well, since we're already on the thread of AI, why don't we dive in deeper a little bit more? I know that, mm -hmm. that you're, I'm like, yeah, a big worry of yours and also cause some excitement on yours as well. The future with AI could also be really, really good. But yeah, I'm super interested in how the last, I guess, few months have, did you have any kind of, let's say, change of perspective in the past few months? Or have you like 
changed your actions in terms of how you're spending your time, what you're advocating for now. I think you just mentioned that in the beginning that you're advocating for a slowdown now, um, mm -hmm. potentially, if at all possible. Yeah. So I'm super curious just to get a little bit more into, into your current thinking on, on the topic and, and what you'd recommend folks do if they're mildly freaked out at this point. What up? For the last kind of 10 years, there's been this like outstanding question of like, how far will deep learning take us? Is it, is it that we are still missing some kind of important insights that we have to potentially wait for 50, next 50 years to actually kind of get to something that is human level as defined as in able to do its own inventions and build its own technology and tends cut humans out of the loop when it comes to shaping the future of this planet? Or is it like, will deep, deep learning kind of like take us all the way in, in, in a way that we just like build bigger and bigger networks and suddenly you have this whatever insight forming sub networks and sub graphs just like naturally forming as a result of backpropagation pressure, optimization pressure. And I think the, the large language models that started from transformers is like definitely strong evidence that not, I mean, not super strong, but still pretty strong evidence that, uh, yep, deep learning will take us all the way. Still uncertainty there. It's possible that we're going to run out of steam still. I wouldn't rule it out. But yeah, my majority bet is now that I know that's the end game. Like there's, it's possible. Like I, I just wrote like a document for a, a memo about the need to slow down. And I, there I gave basically my 90% confidence range is one to 50% chance of existential event after every 10xing of the training regime. So we basically, I think, unless, yeah, basically my, my current model is that we're living with like several percentage, several percents per year of X risk now. So everyone has like a cancer right now. And do you have more concrete ideas on timelines specifically? I think that, what was it, Metaculous? I think yesterday the community prediction was at April 5, 2039 or something, but... Do you have any, any more? Yeah, I mean, my, my, my dinos are in 20s. So it's, I would be surprised if, if we're going to run out of steam in a way that like, uh, we can, we can still be alive in 30s and look back that, that, oh, we still need to work on AI and the world hasn't changed as catastrophically or good or forward. Yeah, basically, I think like even if we, if we're going to ban all the giant AI experiments that are currently happening, even then, like there would be like, I mean, GPT-4 level minds will outnumber humans and they are basically smarter than median college student. So <laughs> it's kind of hard to see like how the world will not be completely transformed as of this month. <laughs> plus, yeah. plus like what, whatever, whatever inertia it takes for these things to proliferate. Uh, but like, of course, if we don't stop training, then yep, the next generation. Yeah, I think there's uh, several percent chance that every, gener every generation might be just completely wiped out life on this planet. There was an interesting post, I think, on Eswang on why the next decades might be wild of laying out like almost year by year of what we get if we get like this information at just a much cheaper rate, even just with existing models and like automating, exploiting vulnerabilities, computer attacks and so forth. And even that was like already like pretty bad if just like extrapolating outboard where we currently are and where, where this may lead us soon enough like mm -hmm. regarding the internet and potentially like with content that perhaps doesn't doesn't correspond to reality so even if we just take where we are right now i think it's already just extrapolating that outward is already pretty like it's, it's a different world mm -hmm. so in terms of slowing but, down uh, i mean one sort of like optimistic note is that if you could stop these like giant ai experiments and by the way they will stop uh, like uh, naturally because we just run out of ability to throw money unprofitably attempt they're not profitable right now these ai experiments are running at loss they like the big experiments are costing more than it 
then you can run the the resulting models before they are obsolete in in like half a, half, like six to six to twelve months. So they're not recouping the, the costs. And if you're gonna ten x this this costs a few times, you're like already at national GDP territory. So so we will run out of steam at one point. But of course, like is it like a late? It really seems that it does that. The step between free and GPT-4 was really, really, really big. So if, I'm not sure if you have many of those left still. But yeah, okay. Actually, I wanted to say a positive thing. Positive thing, thing is that if you manage to kind of like stop the giant experiments, I do think that GPT-4 is sort of can be shaped. Like it still feels controllable enough. Or chances seem to be good that GPT-4 level mines can be integrated into something that is like positive looking. Yeah. But with each successive generation, I'm kind of less less confident in this. John, I was wondering what ideas do you think are most promising for how we might slow down AI progress? Current paradigm seems to be like super hardware, hardware dependent, and particularly kind of requires this unprofitable, massive training runs. So as I kind of say that like a billion dollar project is hard, a billion dollar project that is illegal is, is, is almost impossible. But there aren't that, that many $1 billion projects that are illegal happening in, in the world. It's just super hard to coordinate people to do something like that. So yeah, it's just a kind of like making, first of all, like just make, getting a moratorium on these like big training runs would be great. Uh, I think, I mean, I, I've been trying to kind of like solicit some feedback from people about this moratorium idea. And like, I haven't gotten like a lot of pushback. So many people seem to be on board with moratorium and just like use this moratorium to figure out like how to to have a more responsible when it comes to building digital minds on this planet. Uh, but yeah, luckily, because of this like massive energy requirements, they're much easier to, to control than, than something that is everybody can do there in their basement. They're, they're more close to sort of like enrichment of uranium than they are to, I don't know, some writing scripts. So you think... Is there compute, anyone? Compute governance is, is like a real priority area to be working in. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. I mean, I don't have a very good model of like how exactly, how doable it is from the sort of government perspective, which is slow and dumb as an, it's like a, it's an organism, not a mechanism. So I guess it, but we would be, it's possible that, that the, of the future will rely on some smart people in government, especially in US government. No. Are there anyone, is there anyone you know that's actively working on the moratorium or are you spearheading it now? And if so, are you able to say the names of the organizations that are working on it? I mean, this is like super early, but there are, there are, yes, a few, few organizations who are like actively trying to have some meetings and consultations about it, but I probably shouldn't mention them. They're just uh, trying to, I mean, currently what's, what's happening is that, that there is, I feel there's like a wide, spread acknowledgement that like this current trajectory, current trajectory of like uh, blindly building these uncontrollable digital minds is not great, but there is no common knowledge about it yet. So like people think that they are in minority when it comes to um, thinking that this, the current trajectory is bad, but they're not. And like, it needs to be, this common knowledge needs to be built, but like you have to be careful to not screw up this common knowledge building because there are incentives also like on the other side to, to dismiss this thing and model the water. So yeah, there's like some, some process happening there. It's interesting because I don't know if you saw Eliezer's We're All Going to Die a podcast. And, and in that one, he, I guess like his main idea for what to do with a pile of money would be to <laughs> buy out an island and just get everyone there just to distract them for a little bit while they're not building. Mm. He seemed a little bit like less optimistic that you could do the kind of global coordination. By the way, fun, fun yeah. fact, uh, I was just in Eliezer 
Eliezer in Tokyo. Like first first time he was in Japan. I I never seen happy Eliezer. He was happy. <laughs> I'm really happy to hear that. Warms my heart. Yeah, um, he, he 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 loved Tokyo. Really loved Tokyo, which I also do. So did you get him dancing? No, <laughs> I got like a lot of people dancing, but Eliezer wasn't one of them. Baby steps, baby steps. So. Uh, but he seemed to be a little like less optimistic than you are. Maybe that the global coordination that would be required for such a moratorium to work. Also, for example, China that that could work. I talked to a few folks, for example, just to figure out like how how far do they think along are is China now that ChatGPT came out, and they were like basically just like oh, China pretty much lost the race at this point because they yeah. have limited much of the ChatGPT use in many of. I the think there are two things that. that the two two points about about China that kind of makes it more of a boogeyman than it is like a real. Thing. Like one is that it's important to note that these are compute heavy. That's compute heavy training that produces uncontrollable minds. China has an issue with both of those facts. Like one is that uh, yeah, like they have like harder time acquiring compute than than US because of the sanctions. I don't know how much harder, but like at least non-zero harder, non-zero amount harder, and like, they're not keen at all on un uncontrollable minds let loose on, on their territory. That's why, why that's why the, it, like everything, the Baidu, Baidu Ernie presentation in that presentation was pre-recorded. Like there's no way they, they, they can kind of like take the risk of, of having a live, live dialogue with an uncontrollable mind in a way that Microsoft, unfortunately, doesn't see a problem. Yeah. One thing that, uh, when Eliezer went on the podcast, I was thinking, well, why is he going on a crypto podcast? And he did say, oh, it's not like we need more money. No, not much we can do with this as, at this point with me or like maybe consider donating to or whatever. But he did say kind of like, if you're the type of security nerd that like tries to encrypt their passport several mm -hmm. different times that doesn't think it's safe, then maybe just maybe consider working on AI safety. And so I, I wrote out this like mega post that was well, not published yet, but ho hopefully soon on just like why I think security and, and cryptography are like different mindsets could be much more useful for AI and like mm -hmm. everything of infosec concerns, but also to really the security mindset, the game theory, like red teaming that many people in security do. And we have a big community with that within that infosite, all the way to like thing like approaches like federated learning or homomorphic encryption. And the trust had this great paper on building safe AI through homomorphic encryption. So I'm super curious to get your two cents on like you also as someone who is straddling both the kind of like security and crypto fields and the AI fields, do you think that we should be trying to recruit more in these areas? Do you think that's yeah beneficial at all? Yeah, I think the uh, sort of infosec is just like, robustly good because it makes the outcomes more predictable. Like you can have like, some kind of abstraction. Your, your abstractions are going to be less leaky. Data center is going to contain the processes if it's secure. If it's not secure, who knows what's going to happen? And if your operating system is, is secure, you can issue like a pseudo, pseudo kill nine, kill, kill dash nine. Whereas if it's not secure, like, this command is just going to be ignored. So yeah, I think InfoSec seems to be just robustly good. It's not going to be enough once we have superhuman minds, but yeah, I hope it's not going to try to try to postpone the moment where we have superhuman minds. And then that regime seems like it's massively good. Cool. Do you want to leave us with perhaps like a more of a hopeful and like image of the future? Have you just become much less hopeful with the past few, let's say, months in <laughs> Europe? Or is there is there like a carrot or something that? Yeah, yeah. So, really yeah, I'm, I'm very, I'm very hopeful. I'm posit very positively kind of surprised that that there isn't really haven't gotten so far. So far, we haven't gotten like a lot of pushback when it comes to. Yep, we need. It's just not a bad. It, it seems to be just a bad idea to just rush ahead, rush ahead, and not give the world a chance to adjust to the presence of intelligent minds, intelligent non-human minds. And if this if this kind of 
seems to be, if, if, if this builds into a strong consensus, I think the chances of actually coordinating around this are much, much better than, than on prayers. And if you can, if you can coordinate around that, then yeah, like there's a lot of cool stuff. I mean, I mean, I, I do check like midjourney.com like regularly because they're just like so cool pictures, right? And sort of, I think this is a general principle, like the stuff that, that could be built if you're going to manage to contain the risk risks could be just really amazing. Yeah, I agree. Maybe in the last minute, if you could leave folks with something, has there been like one, either an instance in your life that really changed your trajectory or someone like a mentor of yours that like really shaped your path or a piece of advice that you got, mm -hmm. I think is like really useful for others to hear maybe as they're a little bit at like earlier stages in their career. I guess the biggest thing that is, I found like important is sort of like could be like specific to me as in like I can internalize it is just use like functional decision theory like <laughs> in the sense that think of yourself as a group of people and think past versions and future versions of yourself as a part of a group that you need to have some kind of negotiations with and have policies that cover this group instead of like making ad hoc decisions. So, and I have a bunch of examples where I can apply this. I mean, investing is an obvious thing. Like you just, if you, if you just make your decisions ad hoc, you're just going to lose. Make, have, a, have a policy, have a plan, and then just execute that plan. And, and you can update the plan, but never, you always have to have, to have like a good reason to update the plan, even if, even if it seems to go, go badly. What I really love is that even for your donations, I think on your website, really, you lay out the plan and how you reason about them so that I think like people are really aware of your, of your policy. So I think it's, it's really cool. Well, but also, also like poli having like policies kind of makes your makes yourself easier to cooperate with, right? So that's like one, one really big value. Yeah, especially when they communicate it well. <laughs> thank you. Okay, well, thank you so much. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm eager to see how your, how your like recent efforts and in, in general compute and GPU and, and AI so done will go. Please let us know. And I guess we will find out one way or the other, given your timelines very soon. Um, my my usual like joke about this is that, that wish me luck because you are going to need it. Yeah, <laughs> great. Well, no pressure on you, Jan. We're all pretty much... <laughs> At this, at this point. No, but seriously, thank you so, so much for coming on. Thank you to all of the fellows for coming on. This was one of, I think we're having four quarterly like meetings with a few people that we want to introduce you to in the FOSA community. I really, really thank you, Jan, for all of the work that you've been doing for our larger community and, and continue to do. So thanks a lot. And I hope to see many of you either tonight or at one of our workshops in person very soon. So thanks everyone. Have a lo lovely rest of your day and yeah, see you very soon. Bye-bye. Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Fawcett Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date or visit Fawcett.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations, so please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>